Well, this morning we are wrapping up our series uh, in the book of Nehemiah called Nehemiah, a Fixer Upper Story. And we've been talking about this idea of our lives being a fixer upper, that all of us are in a, a, a state of uh, trying to knock down and, and take care of some brokenness, some old things, and, and restore them and make them new. And we've been talking about it from the vantage point of Nehemiah because Nehemiah has this neat story where he experienced this call from God to go to his ancestral homeland where the city is in ruins and they are in desperate need of a reawakening, a restoration, a revival. And Nehemiah goes back and he leads the charge to rebuild the walls. And we've, we've learned that in the overarching story of the Bible, the importance of Nehemiah's story is this reality that God had promised that he would raise up a Savior, a Messiah, through the Israelite people. And that if Nehemiah doesn't go and they don't rebuild the wall, there's this reality that likelihood is there's not really this Israelite people to have a Messiah come from. And in this story, we've looked at this reality of opposition, that in Nehemiah's story, he faced opposition to his call into this project that he had. And we talked about this idea that opposition is not just possible, it's inevitable. But that opposition is an opportunity to trust God. That when we experience opposition and we continue forward, we can have confidence because if God calls us to something, he will see us through it. And then this last week uh, from my uh, son's uh, bedroom slash uh, our front living room, it was two-parter because of uh, some technical difficulties, I gave a brief message on this idea of building together. And let me just give you kind of the high points of it. The whole concept of the message was this reality that Nehemiah, in his call, had everyone he needed to rebuild the walls right there. He didn't have to, like, call in uh, these contractor people. He didn't have to call in um, the people who were the most skilled and gifted. But we talked about this idea that everyone that God, uh, everyone that Nehemiah needed for the project, God provided and was likely already there. And we also talked about this reality that sometimes it's not about our gifting, it's not about our, uh, our passions, it's not about our convenience, that sometimes when there is a mission that we believe is important and great, that we jump in because we love the mission. And in particular, as followers of Christ and as the church, we love the mission that it's all about people coming to know Jesus. And we know Nehemiah's story is legit, and we know that people are all in, because again, we quite literally read in the midst of some weird writing and weird names the fact that there was people who worked on the dung gate. Now, let me tell you, when you investigate more clearly through, you know, the historical and Hebrew things, do you know what the dung gate is? It's where the poopy's at. It just is. It would have been a crappy job. I'm just going to be honest. Thank you. That's a... It's a little pun there. Thank you. I've been thinking about that for a while. But seriously, Nehemiah got people so bought into this mission, this vision, that they were willing to even do something like that. And my hope and prayer is that as the church, the, the overarching church and that as our church, that we would be so bought into the mission of loving people and helping lead them to new life in Jesus, that it would lead us to, yes, at our best, we find places to serve in our gifting, but also that we'd be so in in investing our time, our talent, and our treasure, that it doesn't exactly matter what we're doing or how we're getting to do it as long as we get to be a part of the greater mission. And the cool thing is that God invites us into that. This morning, I want to talk about three R's. And I kind of want to wrap up the story of Nehemiah. 
And the three R's are repentance, revival, and reform. And a lot of those words probably give you some different connotations. Take just a quick second and maybe thinking about them. What, what, when you hear repentance, revival, and reformation, or reform, what do you think of? For some of us, it is maybe negative things. They are churchy words. They're $5 words that don't seem like they mean much. But I want to talk about them from the story of Nehemiah, but I also want to talk about them, how they could be important in our own lives. But before we dive into the story of Nehemiah, i got to tell you about an important moment that happened this week in my family's life. So uh, my wife, Hunter, was the one who spearheaded this idea, and, and I really appreciate it. She didn't say this is why, uh, but I think what had happened is I think she was very worried about this, taking seriously this idea of training up uh, our son Gideon in the right way, and we didn't want him to know the untruth. And, you know, there's been lots of conversations in, in the media lately um, that I just think is really false. And, uh, you know, it's been talking about this idea of LeBron James being the greatest basketball player of all time, which we know is absurd. It's ridiculous. And so we, we did something that I think is, is both sacred and holy, and uh, we, we watched the movie Space Jam with my son Gideon. And uh, I had the opportunity to share with him that Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player of all time. There's no question. There's no argument. I mean, six rings. How many does never lost in the finals? I mean, the flu game. There's so many different things. Had the opportunity to open his eyes to this idea that you're not going to buy into the lies that maybe other kids are going to tell you, uh, but you're going to know the truth. Now, I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek and laughing, although it is true. And if you want to have an argument and you want to be wrong, uh, that's fine. I'll talk with you. But there is something that's kind of funny that I did think about. It's sort of funny that if, if we don't watch a movie like Space Jam with my son, it's kind of crazy that over time, every generation becomes enamored with a certain great, right? That it's always funny that um, I, I began to feel old when I start talking to kids and, I, I, and they, 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 they totally miss references that I thought were like still in. Uh, they, they, that there were, you know, sports heroes, there were movies, there were actors, actresses, people like that, who just, it doesn't even um, resonate with them. And the reason is they just, they kind of came out of vogue. They, they weren't as cool anymore. Someone else came as the kind of new, great, hot thing. And in a small way, the story of Nehemiah fits in some of this, that the reason that the Israelite people eventually were exiled, that they ended up being in ruin, is that they forgot about who their God was. And they forgot about, since they forgot about who their God was, they forgot about who they were because of that. They forgot that they were chosen to be a people who would be holy and set apart. They forgot about the fact that they would be a people that God would use to bless all nations. They had an identity crisis. And the thing was, is that they had to have somewhat of a rebirth. They had to have a reawakening, if you may. I'm going to be jumping around uh, Nehemiah uh, chapters uh, 8 through 9. And if you have a Bible, you can open up to uh, Nehemiah chapter 8. But if not, uh, you're going to see it up on the screen. But uh, this is what happens. This is the, the, the wall has been rebuilt. It took 52 days. They did this project. We talked a little bit about that. I haven't kept this as some big reveal, like what's going to happen. I've been pretty forward with the idea that uh, Nehemiah gets this call and they do rebuild the wall. Uh, but I do want to hone into this idea that maybe... Uh, the wall was more of a metaphor. It wasn't just a wall. Um, it says this, 
when all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate, they told Ezra, the teacher of the law. Ezra was, was sort of the, the prophet of the time. He, he himself had tried to do some uh, revitalization, some revival, some restoration with the people uh, before Nehemiah came, but it didn't work. And so at the end here we see Nehemiah and Ezra kind of working together. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which, were, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And so on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, which had made up, which was made up of men and women of all who were able to understand. He read aloud from daybreak until noon as he faced the square before the water gate. And in the presence of men, women, and others who could understand, and all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, this may seem like, wow, whatever, Aaron, but this is a significant moment in this whole process. Then in a lot of ways, this begins this moment of, well, yes, the walls had to be restored so the enemy couldn't attack, so they could begin to really be a people group again. What is happening in this moment is there are people who, for maybe the first time, or at least the first time in a long time, are quite literally hearing about their God who saved them. They're hearing about their God who called them to a new life, a holy life, a God who called them to a better way to be his people. This would be this reawakening, this, this first big moment for some of these people to really get it. And in some ways, you can understand this fact that, yes, the walls were important, but in reality, it didn't really matter. Walls are just walls. That to really be restored as a people, it had to have them come back to a new relationship with how they were experiencing God. Continues on and just says, Ezra opened the book and all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord and the great God and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. And they bowed down and they worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Goes on in verse 9 and just says, And on the 24th day of the same month, the Israelite people gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their face. This would have been an act of, of repentance, this, this, this mourning, this understanding that, that, that something had been wrong. Those of the Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood up in their places and they confessed their sin and the sins of their ancestors. And they stood uh, there where and they read the book of the law and their God for a quarter of the day and spent the other quarter confessing and worshiping God. Now what's amazing is there eventually becomes this huge celebration as the wall is restored, as the people have begun to be restored to God. <coughs> and it's this beautiful picture moment of where we see the people begin to repent and confess their sin and to begin to experience a revival because of it, a new confidence in who they are supposed to be. And we begin to see that the rest of the book, we read about how there are reforms made. There are ways in which they begin to try to re-become the people of God. But can I be honest with you guys? The book of Nehemiah is kind of a downer. Because what ends up happening is even though all of those things happen, it still ends with the people turning back to their old ways. It ends with this reality that they still weren't good enough. Can I tell you guys something that's, that is true? That when truth is accepted, it leads to freedom. I really do believe that. But the reality is what happened in the story of Nehemiah 
is that although Nehemiah was a great leader, a great rebuilder, a great restorer, a great deliverer, Nehemiah wasn't Jesus. The truth is, Jesus is the only truth. And the reality is, like the people in that story, and people like us living today, we will never experience true restoration, true freedom, true revival, without Jesus Christ. The book of Nehemiah pushes us towards it. But I do want to pull out some lessons from the book of Nehemiah. And I want to talk about these, these four R's real quick. And I want to break them down because I think sometimes to hear words that are kind of churchy, sometimes either we are like, eh, I don't like that, or I just don't understand that. So let's, let's first talk with this. Because again, just because Nehemiah's book ends not great, it doesn't mean that there's not still things that we can learn from them. And I want to talk about maybe the moments where Nehemiah and the people slipped up and where we could do better. First one is repentance. Repentance quite literally just means to turn from. It's a 180 degree turn. It's leaving behind. If you think about it from this context, it's, it's, I, I, I think what I, what I worry about sometimes is repentance has become a word that feels like a dirty word. When we hear repentance, we, we begin to sometimes almost feel guilty or negative. You know what I think? I think we've got to re-hijack a word like that, right? Instead of it having to be about the negative bad things that have happened, what if it's about the turning to something that's good? What if instead of it having to be about the sin that we've committed, instead it's about turning to the Father who is just really good? You've probably heard this story before about the story of this prodigal son. There's this, this son who uh, asks his father for his inheritance earlier, and he basically just swears him off. He, he, he blows him off and he leaves and goes to his foreign land, has all sorts of wild parties, but blows all his money. All his friends, all his wealth is gone. And he finds himself uh, working with pigs. And he, he's literally eating the slop like the pigs. And he eventually comes to this moment where he realizes, what am I doing? You know, maybe I won't get everything I want, but if I just turn and went back home, surely things would be better. That's what this is all about. Nehemiah, at the forefront of the story, repented of his sin. Before he even went on the journey on the call, he repented of his sin. He acknowledged where he had been wrong. He acknowledged where his people had been wrong. And he asked the Lord for forgiveness. And my friends, if you truly want to have a beautiful fixer-upper type of life, if you truly want to have an amazing 2019, can I be honest with you? Have to begin with repentance. You have to begin with this idea of acknowledging the wrong, the sin in our lives, the ways in which we have put other things in God's place, the ways in which we've been chasing after something else rather than God. And I'll be the first one to say I have to repent. I have to repent of my pride, of my selfishness, of lust, of all sorts of things that if I don't keep things in check... If I'm not constantly making sure that I'm following Jesus, it's so easy to turn from Him. But we really can't turn to Jesus if we don't start first by turning from whatever we're already following. And so I don't know what that looks like in your life this morning. I don't know if when I'm saying these things you're thinking of some deep, dark secret or if you're just thinking of something small. But regardless, anything that is turning us away from Jesus is still turning us away from Jesus. Good things can turn you away from Jesus. Your career, your family, there are lots of things that we can make into idols and put in the place in which we need to follow after Jesus and we're using other things 
in His place. Whatever you're doing, I beg you, I plead with you, turn from those things and start following after Jesus. And then there's the second word, revival. Revival, it just means reawakening. It means a, a restoration, an instance of something just becoming popular or, or active or important again. Now, revival is an interesting word because it, it, I think we typically, when we think of revival, we think of like there having to be like these tents and people maybe speaking in tongues or all sorts of different things. But really, a revival is just, it's this reawakening. It's this, this idea of, of having just this moment of realizing what is happening now shouldn't be, and there's a better way forward. In the story of Nehemiah, what they realized when they opened up the Word of God, when, when they realized the truth would set them free, that they were God's people. What they realized is they reawakened this idea of who they could be. And they reawakened this idea of making God important again. What had happened over time throughout the story of the Israelite people is that what would happen is that there would be generations who really wouldn't pass along the promises and the hope that God had set forward. That they had eventually became so focused on other things that honestly it kind of went to the back burner. That there were some generations in the Israelite people who quite literally, they didn't even really realize who they were or that they had a God. And so they have this reawakening. And my friends, this morning my hope and my prayer for you is maybe today is a moment to have a revival. A reawakening in your own heart. Because maybe some of you have been following the Lord before, but man, things feel stagnant or maybe you've kind of turned away. And maybe this morning is an opportunity to put God back in His proper place. But i got to be honest with you guys about something. So much of us want revival, right? We, I, I talk with people all the time. I wish I just felt on fire for God like I did fill in the blank. When I went to summer camp, when I went through the great banquet, when I went through something else. I, I want this. And oftentimes when I talk to people, you know what I've realized? They've skipped a step. They want revival without repentance. And can I be real with you guys? You can't have revival without repentance. The Israelite people in this moment, they're not able to restore any sort of glory unless they repent. Jesus himself, when he began his ministry, he taught, repent for the kingdom is here. He was basically proclaiming, listen, you can't be a part of my new kingdom if you don't turn from the kingdom that you're already a part of. It's just a reality. If we don't learn to repent, we're not going to re experience revival. If we want to have a new life, we can't keep living the same old life. Here's the last one. Reform. Reform means to make change in order to improve or to remove faults. Reform is all about this idea of making sure that there's something set in place so that way you don't have to go back to where you were. What I mean by that is think about this. This is the time of year where everyone talks about bettering their health, right? Everyone's going to start clean eating, Everyone now is going to do keto, right, or things like that. And, and they're so focused on these things. Now, imagine this. Imagine if I told you that I wanted to start to clean eat, but I didn't want to get rid of the unhealthy foods in my life. I was going to continue to just keep the Oreos in my cupboard. I was still going to have the chocolate milk in the fridge. Uh, I still was going to just eat whatever I wanted. You'd probably say, well, Aaron, of course, you're probably going to fail, right? It doesn't matter. You can have all these great intentions, but if you don't make plans to remove things from your life that are going to tempt you, to remove things from your diet that are going to not be healthy, well, of course you're not going to do that. But in the reality is, oftentimes in our spiritual life, we do that. 
We repent one Sunday. We say, woohoo, I'm feeling great. I love the Lord. And we do nothing in our life, in our habits, in our rhythms, in our relationships to change. And the reality is, my friends, is that revival, it begins with repentance, and it has to lead to reforms if we want to continue on. That if we don't make changes in our lives, if we don't remove things from our lives, we are always going to be in this vicious cycle of turning back to worthless things, to failing constantly. And the truth is, the reality is, we are always going to fail. Let me just take that off, off the table for you. You will never be able to get to a place where you're not going to have to repent. Do you know why? Because you're not good enough. You know, the reason why the story of Nehemiah ends the way it is is because Nehemiah wasn't Jesus. In Jesus, we find someone who we can repent, we can experience revival, and we can make reforms, and he is good enough. He is the end-all, be-all for us. But it's still this reality that if we don't make any changes, then guess what? We're going to stay the same. Can I tell you something that's going to just be mind-blowing? You're probably going to say, wow, Aaron, I never thought of it this way. Let me just tell you this. Things won't change until you change. Yeah, crazy, right? Things won't, I know, I know. You're thinking like, wow, Aaron, Pulitzer Prize winning. This is crazy. But truly, things will not change until you change. And you cannot experience life change if you don't change your life. Like, I feel like this is probably a message you're like, Aaron, I've heard that you preach this a thousand times. And do you know why I continue to preach it? Because we have to continue to hear it. So many of us, we want to experience revival, but we make no change. We want to, we want to, we want to feel the Lord near us. We want to feel His peace. We want to feel His presence. We want to feel like we're following His will, but we want to do it on our terms. We're looking for a magic silver bullet. We're looking for that pill that is going to make us healthy, strong, good-looking, all those things without having to do anything. We are looking for that investment that costs us nothing but turns back a great profit. And the reality is we know that any good blessing is going to require sacrifice. We know that any good relationship takes work, right? And my friends, may I just impress this upon you? It is a journey that will never end, but it is a journey that is worth it and it's good. And it's a journey you don't have to go alone. You know, I think what started with the Israelite people was really good because they began to repent together. They began to seek the Lord together. They made reforms of accountability together. But the reason that they failed is they didn't stay together. The church has an awesome opportunity to individually repent, but repent as a people. We have an awesome opportunity to experience revival in our own life, but also revival in our church. But again, so much of it will die if there's not reform, if there's not changes, if there's not accountability that is set up. So my whole big point of all this message, of this whole series, is just this. I promise you that even in the midst of your brokenness, our Father God sees you and He says, I can do something great with this. Joanna Gaines ain't got nothing on me. And I can take your brokenness and I can make you whole. But it's got to start with repentance and acknowledging that something's wrong. It has to mean that if we want to experience revival, 
if we want to experience this reawakening, things have to change and we have to change. My friends, I urge you and I plead you that if you're tired of your life just constantly feeling in chaos, in brokenness, if you're tired of just feeling constantly like you're running back to the same old thing, as Proverbs talks about, like a dog returning to its vomit, I urge you to repent, to experience revival, and to reform your life. But don't go at it alone. Jesus loves you right where you're at in your brokenness. But He also loves you so much that He doesn't want to keep you there. That He wants to change you into His image. And He wants you to experience a new life that you could never have on your own. Like the story of the prodigal son. He sees you when you run down that hill. Broken. Honestly, having been a turd. And He runs to you. And He so desperately just wants to embrace you. And He wants to throw the biggest party for you. And He wants you to dwell in His house forever. The choice, though, is ours to take the call. To fight through the opposition. To be in it together. And to commit to these three R's. I hope and pray that you will. Would you guys stand with me as we're going to pray. And we're going to close out with one more song. Pray with me. God, I just thank You so much for who You are. God, I thank You for the fact that, God, because we know who You are, God, we know who we can become. God, because You are a good Father, because, as Jesus taught, a a good Father, when their children ask for something good, doesn't give them a bad gift, but He always gives them a good gift. God, I thank You for the fact that, that, God, You call us sons and daughters. That, God, even in the midst of our brokenness, our unfaithfulness, our wandering hearts, that, God, You always save a seat for us at the table. God, You are standing outside the house looking for us. And, God, the truth is, even when we try to go far from You, God, You are always drawing near. God, I thank You for that. God, this morning... God, I repent of my sins. God, I'm sorry for the ways that I have made my life about me. God, I'm sorry for the ways that, God, that I have put other things in your place. God, good things and bad things. God, I pray this morning that we could reclaim repentance. God, not as something that we have to feel tons of guilt and shame, but God, that it could be this joyous moment of turning from what was leaving us broken, leaving us empty, filling us just with with an identity that we were never supposed to have. But God, would we take the joy of turning around and just running back to You, of You embracing us as Your Abba, as our Abba, our Father. God, I pray that we would experience revival. God, I pray that in this world, God, I know there's darkness, there's evil. God, I pray that there isn't revival in our country. God, I pray that it starts in our hearts and it starts in our churches. God, I pray that we would be reawakened to just this incredible love that we experience through you. God, I pray that we would be people of Jesus. God, going into this world, giving out that love in a crazy way. That, God, it would spark revival in our workplaces, in our schools, in our neighborhoods. But God, may it start first in our own hearts. 
And God, I pray that we would take the courageous, bold steps to reform some of our lives, that we would put in places of accountability, that, God, we would decide that, God, we want our lives to change, and we're actually going to make changes, that we're not just going to say, God, I want a new life and keep the same life, but, God, we're going to make changes in our relationships, in our habits, in our thoughts, in the way that we experience and encounter our neighbors. God, would we change? So that way we can be made more in the image of you. God, I love you just so much for who you are. And God, I just thank you so much for the opportunity that, God, we always have to come running home. God, would this be a moment where maybe some of us come home? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.